Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia to just being part of the gig when I took on a 30-year career in morning television and radio. I dug a little bit deeper and found out I had a lot more to learn. So, in this series, we're going to fix your sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken and maybe we can stumble upon some answers together. We're going to do that by talking to the world's leading sleep researchers and neuroscientists, but also to celebrities and high achievers who have sleep challenges built into their day-to-day experience. We'll find out how they get to sleep, and then I'll try out the same thing myself for a couple weeks to see if it works for me. Coming up, a conversation with a guy I've been wanting to get on the show for a while because many of his hot buttons align with mine. So in seconds, we'll introduce you to Jesse Cook. But I want to quickly give you a heads up about things that are coming up soon on the show. Next week, I'm excited to welcome Diane Macedo from ABC News and Good Morning America. She has a new book coming out December 14th called The Sleep Fix. And I highly, highly recommend Diane's new book. We'll even offer you a chance to win a copy of Diane's book, too. Details on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. But a spoiler alert, it involves our brand new weekly newsletter. Now, December the 21st, fun panel conversation where I sit down with four experts to finish a conversation that was started over the summer with Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, where she suggested that uh, certain adult activities might be beneficial for sleep. So we get a panel together to discuss where we are with the science of whether sex is good for sleep. Then, December the 28th, we learn about how rock stars manage to get their Zs while they're out on the road. Different town every night, different hotels, or maybe even tour buses. We'll be talking to Lawrence Gowan, keyboard player and one of the front men for the legendary band Styx. We'll talk about how he has no trouble sleeping on the tour bus and, in fact, sleeps better on the tour bus. We'll also get into how rock stars who are getting on in years stay on top of their game, as we see from so many who are now still rocking out into their 60s and 70s. And we even geek out a little and get Lawrence's opinion on why Styx isn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet. That's what's coming between now and the end of the year on the show. But before we get to this week's guest, let's do this week's Beditorial. If you've been with the show for any length of time, you know that I am very big on the science part of why I can't get to sleep. And I look around sometimes on the message boards, on Reddit, on Facebook, all these places where people seem to have theories about why they can't fall asleep. And then sure enough, there's someone in that message board who's oh so willing to help them out by prescribing something that they say will help. And I just want to jump in there all the time and go read some studies, learn some science, see what's actually true out there in the sleep world. It's part of why I'm turning myself into a science experiment for my book, right? I'm going to get these little bits and pieces that people swear by, try them out myself for a couple weeks and see if they are fact or fiction and see if whether or not what works for them might work for everyone. So very big on the science end of it. Um, Interestingly enough, I am not particularly good at throwing a ball which I know, look at me, right? Uh, You'd be thinking to yourself, he can't throw a ball? You know who can throw a ball really well? is Aaron Rodgers. He's a football player. He's a professional football quarterback. And not surprisingly, he can throw... Like, if you're ever in a situation in your life where you look around you and you go, you know what I need right now? I need someone that can throw a ball really far. Um, Aaron Rodgers is your guy. Uh, If you're looking for medical advice, however, might not be your guy. 
Um, and I bring this up uh, because of everything that's going on in the world right now, not only with COVID, but also, you know, flu season and all those different things that are happening and all of the different homespun remedies that have found their way out there. And they largely gain traction through the Aaron Rodgerses of the world who decide that they are in a position where they should be dispensing clinical medical information to people because goodness knows when you throw a ball that makes you qualified. Actually, I did some research on that because I do that. I read research. And when I say I read research, I don't mean I go to Facebook and see what people are saying. I don't mean that I read the abstract on the study. You know that little summary paragraph that comes at the beginning? I don't call that researching and I don't call that reading the study. I call reading the study reading all the way from the top to the bottom, looking at all the charts, looking at all the graphs, reading every single word, looking up the words that I don't know. That's what I consider to be reading a study so that I actually get an understanding of what the science is. And I did little bit of research and found out that there is no correlation between being able to throw a ball really far and being qualified to dispense medical advice. So let me just put it bluntly. If you look at a person like Dr. Anthony Fauci, and you have a platform to the world where there are people who actually listen to what you have to say. And you look at Fauci and you say publicly, yeah, you know, I know you've saved countless lives and you've been doing it since long before the day I was born, but I'm going to take my medical advice from the comedian who got the Tesla guy to smoke pot on his podcast. If that's your message with your platform to the world, um, just a heads up, that does not make you a conscientious objector. It does not make you an aggressive, independent researcher. What it makes you is an idiot. That's this week's editorial. Okay, I think I've done enough damage for one show. Let's get to our conversation with this week's guest. He is a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, sleep nerd extraordinaire, and one of the very prolific sleep voices on Twitter. Let me introduce you to my friend, Jesse Cook. All right, Jesse, so the first question I'm going to ask you, the same first question that everybody in the history of the show has gotten, which is this, how did you sleep last night? Oh, uh, a complicated question. Um, I would say... I like to use a grading scale. Um, usually when I report to my partner or, or ask her daughter about sleep, um, I would give myself a B plus last night. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty solid for me. Um, my typical one to two awakenings. Um, second one was a little bit longer than I was hoping for, uh, but eventually won the battle and was able to get back to sleep in a relatively decent amount of time. So we'll go with a B plus. How about yourself, Neil? Well, that uh, launches me into what I sense will be an entire conversation starter with you because I'm going to ping on a few of your passions here. So my Fitbit Versa 2 tells me that uh, I got uh, three hours and 43 minutes of sleep last night, 68% of which was spent in light sleep, eight minutes in deep sleep, 16% uh, in REM, and another 14% was awake. So... 
given all that data, Jesse, what uh, did I learn about my sleep last night? And if you don't, uh, if you don't follow Jesse yet on Twitter or anything like that, what I've just done is the equivalent of saying to him, "On your mark, get set, go," because I have a hunch that he's going to have a field day with what I just threw at him. Yeah, I gotta first say um, for those that are unfamiliar with me, um, I, I love uh, sleep. I love talking about sleep. I'm a fifth year uh, doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and I began my sleep career at the University of Arizona and the late Dr. Richard Bootson's lab as a, a tiny research uh, assistant at that time. Um, but I got my first real uh, exposure to sleep tracking technology when I went out to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to work with uh, Dr. David Plant. And uh, over the last 10 years or so, we've evaluated multiple models of wearable sleep tracking devices and published a review on the topic uh, in the context of using these devices to assess sleep um, in central disorders of hypersomnolence, which we're really interested in in uh, improving the clinical care for those patients. So these devices were pretty attractive, and we kind of got into um, a rabbit hole, for lack of a better term, when we started exploring these devices. Um, and we found that there was a a lot that was undetermined. And we have now seen progression in these devices. And the device that uh, Neil just endorsed is one of the more modern multi-sensory devices that pairs movement and heart rate to not only quantify, but classify different types of sleep. As Neil pointed out, the device is not just outputting duration or bedtime rise time, but is trying to actually classify the type of sleep that Neil got. And that's my kind of long-winded backstory of hopefully I now have some validity when talking about this subject matter, but to make sense of Neil's information. And so when Neil reports that information to me, I feel pretty confident in the device's assessment of his sleep duration. Um, that three hours and 43 minutes of sleep, albeit insufficiently low, and I, I feel for Neil on that one. Although as someone who assesses sleepy eyes a lot using pupillometry, I'm not seeing a lot of... Uh, uh, tiredness or sleepiness in your eyes. So you're, you're doing something well from a compensatory standpoint, Neil. Um, but uh, largely, when it comes to the actual staging side of things, when they report these deep sleep values or REM sleep or even the light sleep, the best devices these days have major error here. They're a major advancement from where they started. But still, when it comes to these staging outputs, at best, they're probably 60 to 70% accurate um, relative to our gold standard polysomnography, which is still useful. But should Neil be taking that information and changing his life over his REM sleep percentage? Absolutely not at this point. So I think Neil should feel pretty uh, confident that that sleep duration estimate is pretty close to what he probably achieved. Um, and so when making changes there, I, I would leverage that data. Okay, so here's where my Fitbit came in handy, and I'll tell you how my tech has kind of evolved a little bit. Um, it came in handy because when I started seeing numbers like that on a regular basis a few years back, and I would look at, like, for example, last night, and I, so last night I went to bed at a quarter after 12, and my Fitbit tells me that I fell asleep at about 2.40. So I wondered, okay, where did the two and a half hours disappear too. And so I went for uh, polysomnography at Sunnybrook Medical Center here in Toronto. My doctor 
Mark Bulis, tells me that I have a periodic limb movement index of 82. Yeah, thank you for that. Because um, every time I throw that number out, someone pauses for a moment to try and calculate the enormity of that number because 82 is like, okay, uh, to put it into terms, Jesse, that most people can wrap their heads around, in your experience and in the work that you're doing, what is a normal score for a periodic limb movement index? I mean, we're really looking like less than 10 is is what we're kind of looking for. They're less than five even. So yes, the enormity, as you pointed out. Yeah, so I'm an 82. Now, for people who've missed all the episodes where we covered this prior, um, it means that basically I'm violently thrashing in my sleep about once every 40 to 45 seconds all night long. And, you know, my wife has the shin bruises to prove all of that. So we put me on Mirapex which primarily is medication for Parkinson's disease, but also has this wonderful side effect of being able to help with restless leg syndrome, which is what I'm suffering from. And apparently right now, next to iron supplements is the best option for me. But it it was that two-hour gap that my Fitbit was showing me that led me to go, okay, I need to figure out why this is happening because even after, you know, a night like last night, three hours and 43 minutes, I would wake up not feeling particularly rested. And I had almost gotten to the stage of, you know, orthosomnia until I started having conversations with people like you who were telling me that the staging data in these wearables is, it's kind of like throwing darts at a board. And every once in a while, you get a number that comes out correct. So, This whole project, Snooze Button, is about me talking to not only people like you, you know, sleep researchers and stuff from all over the world, but it's also talking to celebrities and high achievers and people who've got sleep problems built into their day-to-day. And like a few episodes back, we talked to Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, and we asked her about how on earth she managed to get to sleep the night before she was one of the lead prosecutors in the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, You know, we talked to astronaut Nicole Stott. How did you fall asleep the night before? you became one of the first 10 women in history to walk in space. How did you fall asleep the night before? So then these people tell me their hack, uh, for lack of a better term, and I try it out for a couple weeks and I see if the things that work for them also work for me. So right now, in order to track that data, my plan is to keep using my Fitbit, but also uh, I've got this lovely Dream 2 headband Uh, that we'll talk about in a second. I've got a battery of cognitive tests that our friend Dr. Adrian Owen from Cambridge Brain Sciences has given me. Those are freely available. We'll put the link for it in the show notes and on our website. And I figured that between those three things, the Fitbit, the Dream 2, and the cognition tests, that I might be getting something reasonably close to accurate as to a measurement of my sleep and how effective it is. Am I am I close? Because I know that sleep tracking tech is right in your wheelhouse. Well, I love the kind of emphasis, first of all, you know, that you're putting on sleep in general and trying to understand it from a kind of multidisciplinary standpoint. And also I love, love bringing on members of society who are highly functioning, but clearly dealing with major stressors and life events and just trying to pick their brain. I think that's a fantastic way to go through life and to um, continue to grow and evolve and, and kind of learn for yourself. And uh, I appreciate that you're providing that to others. As far as all the ins and outs uh, that you're using, I think you're on the right track. Um, you know, the the Fitbit Versa for sure is going to give you um, a really good insight into the reliability of your sleep schedule, whether it's your bedtime rise time, and then the sleep duration estimate, I would feel very comfortable with. Now, that dream device is great. 
because as you're, you alluded to, you have a movement related disorder. And what we've gleaned from the wearables in particular is that they're very, very uh, limited when it comes to detecting motionless wake. Uh, and so any sort of condition too that invites in potentially more awakenings during the night or invites in uh, kind of uniqueness as far as uh, movement detection thresholds, these devices are going to have wider error. And so for you, Neil, I think that device, when it comes to purporting sleep duration estimates, will actually be more inaccurate than somebody else. Um, and it'll all certainly be more inaccurate when it comes to sleep onset latency and, and WASO and things like that. And that's where the Dream may have unique benefit. Uh, and the Dream too, and I really appreciate what they've done in the in you know the past five or ten years as they've brought this product to the market and tried to evolve it, and recently even did a pretty good job from an empirical validation standpoint. Um, the inclusion of EEG, which the Dream headbands inviting it, you know, we have these electrophysiological changes in our brain that can help us better understand uh, the sleep stages transition. Looks good on you. Uh, the staging transitions that we get. Um, this will have a extremely valuable benefit for the accuracy of these devices, especially when it comes to detecting the sleep onset latency in WASO. It'll certainly improve the staging over time because we're getting another bio signal and one that has a lens into kind of the, the different alterations uh, electrophysiologically we're going through in those stages. Uh, the degree to which it's accurate, that bio signal right now through the Dream 2 headband, that's up for debate. But I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think that's the future in some ways, Neil, is the pairing of those two technologies, the heart rate and accelerometry with this EEG. And it's actually been a bit baffling to me to this juncture that we haven't gotten there yet, that companies like Fitbit have not developed a single self-applied electrode you could put on your head to just get a crude assessment of EEG. Um, there's some great work by Hannah Scott, a colleague in the field, who that's shown the um, just increased uh, accuracy from EEG alone to these devices. So I think it's the next evolution is not using two of these devices to do what you're doing, but one device that seamlessly integrates all of this in accessible and user-friendly manner. Um, and I love that you're also looking at the behavioral side of things. because so I think this is a cr an incredibly important uh, component of this is not just what your sleep looks like, but what that sleep looks like in your day-to-day -day functioning. And yes, I imagine your cognitive battery probably uses things like the psychomotor vigilance task to assess reaction time or something along those lines. And no, these are not panaceas into how cognitively capable Neil is in that moment or will be two weeks from now if Neil continues on this path. But it's another piece of evidence. And so that continues to show you like, hey, I'm much better with reaction time on seven hours of sleep versus five. Perhaps there are things in my life I can do to increase that. Or, huh, I stepped away from the TV an hour and a half before bed last night, and although my sleep duration didn't change on my device, my reaction time's better, I'm not making as many lapses, the mistakes on other cognitive tasks are better, maybe I should make that behavioral change. And no, I'm not going to be perfect, and every night I'm not going to step away from the TV an hour and a half ahead of time before bed, but at least that's a you know, a, a motivational uh, enhancement there. So I think you're doing a great job there, Neil.
Well, I mean, fingers crossed, right? I mean, you stumbled onto something as well that you mentioned, and I, I kind of brought you there. The conversation about sort of how I got here, and it was cognition and concerns about cognitive decline. That sort of had me thinking about, you know, okay, is this something that I need to pay attention to because of the impact that it's going to have on me long term? So, I mean, you know, they say that all research is me-search, and certainly in my case, there's a certain degree of that because I would like to, you know, I have a three-year-old, and I would like to be able to go to her graduation and be able to be there in some kind of meaningful capacity. So, fingers crossed on that. I mean, if you're comfortable naming names here, then by all means, go for it. If not, that's okay too. But let me give you the worst case scenario that I'm aware of in terms of sleep trackers that people can have on their phones. And, you know, maybe there's a wearable or a phone-based device that you're aware of that maybe people are giving the short shrift. But the worst one that I'm aware of, I saw somebody in a sleep subreddit talking about this and they had one of those things on their phone that um that tracks your movement and ostensibly your sleep and i mean 10 years ago i had the same app on my phone and you lay it beside you on your mattress and it purports to figure out based on your movements what kind of quality sleep you're getting and the person literally said and the irony of it didn't occur to them they said yeah it turned out it was a problem with my mattress because i had this thing on my mattress when i would sleep at night and uh it said i was moving all the time well so then i decided to try and sleep on the floor instead and the data it gave me back told me i was getting great sleep and in my head i'm like Really? So you weren't moving enough to shake the floor, and that's what leads you to believe that your sleep has improved. Uh, I mean, um, so what's the worst? I mean, is there a best case that you're aware of? Just some readily accessible thing that someone could get their hands on for, you know, less than $500 sort of idea? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, first of all, my, my, uh, Sympathy goes out to that individual who sacrificed the mattress for the floor. Although I do have a unique uh, concern about mattresses in general and our evolutionary history, but that's a topic for a different day, not on wearable sleep tracking technology or nearables. But just in general, I, I feel that most of the major products that exist today, whether a wearable device, which will define as something that could be wrist-worn or head-worn, anything you're applying to your body, or a near, nearable, as Neil was describing there, which is a cell phone that ambiently monitors you, but is not actually directly on you. And there are a myriad of wear or nearables now. Uh, I know Google came out with something recently that uh, sits on your bedside stand and, and monitors things around your environment. Things like snoring, those types of signals as well. For the most part, most of the major companies, as long as they're as a wearable integrating heart rate and movement, they're all probably going to be very similar. Uh, the nearables, I think, are an emerging line of work that needs some fine tuning, and we haven't evaluated them to the same degree as the wearables. So it's a little bit unclear uh, how they perform, and they tend to be a bit more expensive. So when steering people to kind of the best device at this point, my recommendation is, well, if you're working within the major companies, it's probably not going to be a major difference. So then it becomes, what else are you looking for? Are you looking for battery life? Are you looking for the ability to go swimming with your device? Because it's not just about sleep health, it's overall health as well. And sleep is a foundational domain, as I always defend to the bitter end. Um, but there are other bells and whistles that these devices can provide. Uh, and so that's, I think, where I would lead people to 
distinguish between the seemingly overwhelming amount of technology available. Uh, for me, for instance, and I'll throw this out there because I don't use one of the major devices. I'm a nearly broke graduate student. So I have what's known as the Xiaomi Mi Band, which is a $30 to $40 device, I believe, made in China. And why do I use that? Because it provides me everything I want. It has a great battery life of 30 or so days. It can go underwater for me in my spare time. I like to run, bike, and swim. And so it has all those features I'm looking for. Yes, there's a lot of error in these estimations, but it provides me for my life what I want. And I think this device is insufficiently evaluated on a sleep tracking standpoint. So I would never recommend somebody to use this clinically or in the research setting. In the clinical one, we can talk about kind of the ethics of use in this as well. Um, but I would recommend it to somebody who doesn't have a ton of money and wants some crude insight into their day-to-day -day life, sleep, and wake. Well, and you bring up an interesting point there because, I mean, crude insight is one of the things that someone brought to my attention a long time ago where they said, you know, and I threw out the $500 number by design because the way the conversation went was if you're so concerned about your sleep data that you need to spend $500 on some sort of wearable device, then for crying out loud, just call your doctor and get into a sleep lab if you're that worried about it because we don't really, we don't need that much granular data, do we? It's something I go back and forth on, and I think it depends on the individual characteristics of a person. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that we should be comfortable with error in these devices, and we don't need them to be one-to-one -one with polysomnography. Truth be told, polysomnography has error in it. We're peripherally measuring an internal process. Uh, so that'll probably improve over time, and we'll probably look back in 30 years and be like, that's how we were measuring sleep as a gold standard? It was like leeches! Exactly. You know, we're probably going to put people in chambers at some point and use technology that may not even be developed to this stage in 30 years. So um, we just have to permit error in all aspects of measurement. Um, and you're absolutely right. For the vast majority of people in kind of day-to-day -day recreational use, these devices are perfect when it comes to sleep duration. And I'll say that, perfect, because... Generally, I'll be willing to say that for most individuals, the variation from polysomnography is probably about 10 minutes at this point for these modern devices, uh, one way or another. Uh, and depending on individual characteristics, it could be reduced or augmented on that front. But I don't think you really want more. And if you really do, now we're starting to get into domains of performance and optimal performance with athletics, where I think that information may be really necessary. Uh, to kind of move the ball slightly, no pun intended there. But when we're talking about just day-to-day -day functioning in our general lives, let's try and reduce the stress and attention we have to these finite details. You know, you mentioned it earlier, we can really um, have a negative influence on our sleep ability and quality by becoming so obsessed with the data and putting so much pressure on ourselves to achieve seven and a half hours of total sleep time with 22% deep sleep and 20% REM and the REM only comes online 75 minutes into our sleep period. And if we're doing that right now, I guarantee more nights than not, you're going to be laying on your pillow, unable to fall asleep or struggling with the middle of night awakening, getting back to sleep because uh, it's too much pressure and it's too much stress. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's even like, you know, the first night issues with polysomnography where your numbers will inevitably be better on the second night, not because you became a better sleeper, but just because the environment was less freakish to you the second time you went back. So you're probably just going to get better sleep anyway. I mean, I've talked to people who are like, oh, I went for my second test and all my problems were gone. Mm, No, you just got used to the idea of trying to fall asleep in a hospital bed. So there's all this anecdotal stuff, though, that people bring into their own sleep journey, right? And sometimes it's nice to talk to people like you and just kind of get a a nice reset on that. Now, I know you've been looking a lot at restless leg syndrome right now. And I mean, I know there's other things in your wheelhouse, too. We're going to have you back sometime to talk about, you know, this study that Ravi Alata did from Northwestern University, where he studied 40 years of baseball statistics and figured out that the only thing that's impacted by jet lag is the number of uh, home runs that a pitcher will give up. And that's the only stat that gets affected by jet lag but that's a conversation with you for another day because i know you're a sports fan i know in particular uh, baseball and football are in your wheelhouse um but I, I i know that restless leg syndrome is something that you are looking at right now and i i want to talk to you in particular about just one aspect of it and again i'll put links in the show notes and on our website for where you can go and hear all the other conversations that we've had on the show about restless leg syndrome um but one thing that we've been having conversations about recently sort of on the periphery and no one that i'm aware of yet has gone diving into it and this may even be a question that's beyond the scope of your expertise is Are you aware of any data or research out there that points to there perhaps being a psychological component to restless leg syndrome? Here's why I ask. If you go back into our episodes uh, for one of my conversations with my sleep doctor, Mark Boulis at Sunnybrook Hospital, you find out that because of some traumatic things that happened to me when I was six years old um, that, you know, that leads to my calculation that I haven't been a good sleeper my entire life. I mean, I was a terrible sleeper as a teenager, terrible sleeper as a preteen. I've been a terrible sleeper as an adult. And one of the things that Mark said to me, and it stuck, he said, maybe because of what happened to you as a child, you're having all these problems. And it stuck with me, you know, through PTSD and all sorts of things. Um, those incidents from when I was six, he says, maybe your brain has just wired itself to believe that bed is not safe. So, and so the leg movements in your case, while there's obviously a purely neurological side to it, there may also be a psychological component where you're kicking in self-defense because of something that your brain has connected to what happened when you're a child. Is there anything that points to that being a possibility? This is a fantastic topic uh, and one that I actually had not thought about too much yet. Um, So I will clarify that restless leg syndrome, not necessarily my expertise. So I will will dance around kind of the global discussion there or the specifics, I guess, and talk more globally on this. Uh, But I, I... I would be privy to align with your perspective here. I can honestly say that I doubt there is a um, useful line of research thus far kind of trying to tease apart that uh, relationship. But I uh, generally align with your view that trauma gets stored and these these memories are deep ridden. And it's, it's a little bit divergent from our Western medicine thinking. Um, I generally believe that emotional trauma needs to be processed, one. And if it's unprocessed, it can present physically in a myriad of different ways. 
But your hypothesis is, I think, very um, relevant to your situation of the bed has now been unconsciously, whatever the difference between conscious and unconscious is, that's a blurred boundary for sure. Um, and something that'll probably evolve in 20 years as we understand that a little bit more. But the, we'll just say unconsciously is now fully associated that bed from that trauma early on uh, with fear, terror, and escape. And perhaps that is motivating the muscles to engage inappropriately, at least having some sort of hyper arousal during that period, certainly contributing to some of the short sleep that you're having and also the restless legs here as well. Um, and, you know, when I think about this, um, currently I feel blessed to be training uh, from a clinical perspective at the VA here in Madison, Wisconsin, in their behavioral sleep clinic. Um, and I will, you know, disclaim that these views are all mine and, and not at all linked to the VA or the University of Wisconsin. Uh, but you see so many veterans who have such difficulty with sleep. And even when we roll out our interventions that behaviorally and cognitively address sleep issues, there's still something left. There's a residual. And so now I think we're talking about the psychological domain. And I know we're slightly divergent from restless legs in general. Um, but when you start thinking about how we treat nightmares right now, from a cognitive behavioral standpoint, using exposure, relaxation, and prescription therapy, we're really working on psychological processes there. And so perhaps there is something similar to um, restless legs where it becomes, for some, not all, because I'm sure that some, many who experience restless legs don't have the trauma linked to it, uh, but perhaps there is a trauma that has been unattended to. And to identify those people and perhaps intervene in that manner, to establish the bed and bedroom as a place of safety rather than fear and worry, uh, could have a notable impact on their symptoms. I think that's a fantastic hypothesis and something that should be explored a little bit more, not just in the context of nightmares or RLS, but in general with one's comfortability and quality of sleep. Okay. Lots to unpack there. Lots to unpack with our uh, home run conversation and about idiopathic hypersomnia, all kinds of other things for a future conversation. But I'm glad we had room to get you on this week because I've been dying to talk to you for ages. So, uh, Jesse, thank you for making room for this. Oh, absolutely, Neil. And I, I, as I mentioned pre-show, I'm honored to be honored. You've had such a remarkable list of guests come through here. And I, I truly appreciate what you're providing to the audience. And I, I understand it's part of your journey. Uh, but it helps others. And for that, I'm grateful because that's where I want to find my life is to help improve sleep health uh, for everyone. And uh, you're a key contributor to that for the society at large. So thank you, Neil. There you go. That's Jesse Cook. Excited to uh, sometime soon start calling him Dr. Jesse Cook. You can find him on Twitter if you're ready for a whole ton of interesting sleep information. His handle there is Sleep and Sports. If you want to find us on the Twitter machine, we're at Get Your Snooze On. Or you can find all the ways to contact the show, get your questions answered by a team of sleep experts, support the show, and even have a hand in the direction of my book if you want by going to the snoozebutton.com. That's where you can also sign up for a chance to win a copy of Diane Macedo's new book, The Sleep Fix, that comes out December the 14th. She'll be here on our next episode to talk about it. Until then, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? 